Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, we are continuing uh, our sermon series on 1 Corinthians, uh, which we have called the cross-shaped community. Because in this letter, we've seen Paul writing to a first century group of Christians, uh, not all that dissimilar from ourselves, their lives being pulled in countless different directions by the pressures of their culture, the temptations of their own lives. And Paul's writing to tell them that the cross alone uh, is what ought to form them and frame for them what a true and full and successful life looks like. Last week, uh, we we missed a sermon uh, due to some stuff going on in my family. Brother Willie stepped in to to preach. And what we see, we're going to jump back in at 1 Corinthians 15 as Paul nears his conclusion. This is one of the most beautiful uh, chapters in the Bible. It, It starts to show us all that Paul has been driving at. And so we're going to spend a few weeks in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 14 uh, serves to further illustrate what we've seen week after week uh, in this sermon series, which is quite simply that things in Corinth were a mess. Most of the chapter is taken up with Paul talking to them about the way that they worship, that their worship had essentially turned into a chaotic talent show of spiritual gifts where some people spoke in different languages that nobody else knew, other people spoke over one another. Uh, Oftentimes when husbands got up to speak, wives would try to critique or evaluate their husbands. Paul says you ought to try to do that type of thing at home if possible, thank you. (laughs) And so Paul takes up this chaotic situation in Corinth, which he's been dealing with over and over again, the different ways that their, their, their community life was broken. And he ends that great chapter, chapter 14, with the lines, all things should be done decently and in order. Uh, What has become the life verse of many a Presbyterian, all things ought to be done decently and in order. But what we see here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that yes, our lives and our community should be ordered, but what matters isn't whether or not your life is ordered, but what your life is ordered around. You can order your life, have a very neat and tidy life, a very purpose-filled life, but have it ordered around the wrong kinds of things, and your life will be just as empty as it would be if you were left in your chaos. And so we are going to turn uh, this morning to what Paul calls that matter of first importance. And so if you are willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's Word? Our reading today is from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, 
though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. One of my favorite movies of the 1980s uh, is one that uh, shockingly did not win any major awards, um, but the movie City Slickers. I don't know if you remember City Slickers. Um, it's the story of a group of men uh, who leave New York City, uh, led by Billy Crystal in the role of Mitch. Uh, their lives are chaotic and messy. Uh, marriage is in a difficult spot, overworked, overtaxed. And so they go out to a dude ranch in the West uh, to try to uh, kind of recover some sense uh, of their lives. There they meet uh, a cowboy named Curly, uh, played by Jack Palance in a great grizzled uh, cowboy role. And as they're riding, um, the great fictional cowboy Curly uh, says to Billy Crystal's character, Mitch, he said, and this will be my attempt at a Jack Palance voice, you know what the secret to life is? Holds up his finger. Billy Crystal goes, your finger? Your finger is the secret of life? And he goes, one thing, one thing. If you get that one thing, or if you don't get that one thing, nothing else means anything. Billy Crystal says, what's the one thing? Well, that's for you to figure out. In this moment, a philosophical insight uh, is meant to spur Billy Crystal on to find out what his one thing is, the one thing that can give uh, some kind of organizing principle and peace and calm and direction to his life. And it is an important question. What is the most important thing? What is the one thing uh, above all other things? The one thing that when it, it, when it is in its right place in your life, the other things fall into line. When it's not in its proper place, everything else uh, is chaotic. What is your most important thing? Here, Paul uses the language of what I delivered to you as of first importance to talk about the one thing, the most important thing for both our individual lives and for our community life. Right? What is the most important thing for me, for you? What's the most important thing for our church to order everything else around? And Paul uh, here says that the thing, the one thing, the most important thing, is the gospel, uh, the good news of what God has done in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in history, is the one thing uh, alone that gives meaning to our lives, that gives meaning to Christian fellowship and the church, that the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, is the one thing. The church in Corinth, uh, as we've said, was chaotic. It was chaotic because they had lost the one thing. They'd lost touch with the gospel. Now, that's not to say uh, that they had abandoned it outright. It's not to say that they altogether had come to a place of denying the gospel. But rather, other things had started to, to compete with the gospel 
as the most important things in their lives. It's somewhat uh, common to human nature to assume that what we most need to give our lives happiness, joy, fulfillment is something that we don't yet have, right? We live our lives, we experience our lives, we experience our, our sins and our struggles, the difficulties of just living ordinary life. And we assume that what we need to get over that hurdle is something that we don't yet possess, right? If only I had blank, then my life would be easier, happier, fuller. We do this all the time. We do it if only I had a little bit more wisdom, a little more insight than what I have now, right? The next book I read, the next counselor I see, the next conference I attend, that's what's going to give me the insight to to navigate my life. We do it in our jobs, the next promotion, the next raise. If I could just make a little bit more an hour, then my life would have satisfaction. We do it to our relationships, right? If I only had more or better friends, uh, if only I had that romantic relationship that I've been after, then my life would be full. And friends, we do this in our faith. We assume that the next breakthrough is to be found in our next the next, if we can learn a different way to pray, if we could learn a new, new technique for living our lives, for studying our Bibles, for managing our relationships, then and only then would we live the life uh, that we long for. But unfortunately, what happens is when we're convinced that what we need is more, the next thing, is that over time, we just keep adding on next things. We keep adding on new things that we think are going to give us more happiness. And so we end up with these cluttered homes, we end up with these overcommitted schedules, we end up with these anxious hearts and distracted minds. We get caught up in what uh, author Greg McCown calls the undisciplined pursuit of more. More and more and more. And it leaves us feeling burned out and in need of simplifying. You know, I remember, I believe it was last week, I lived my life without any awareness that there was such a person as Marie Kondo. And then somehow, over the last, I don't know if you know who she is, but somehow she has become a global celebrity, in my mind overnight. I didn't know she existed. She, uh, she's written a couple of different books. She's a little, uh, very, very well-organized Japanese woman, kind of a, a Japanese Mary Poppins, um, who has now a Netflix show where she comes into chaotic homes, has you clear out everything you own, all the clutter goes out, and the only things that stay are what spark your joy. And you get rid of stuff. And this has become a phenomenon. I heard that there were, uh, there's a container store in Brooklyn that was sold out two days after her Netflix show premiered because everybody touched such a chord, this, this desire to get some control over the chaos of our lives. Other people uh, flooded into thrift stores because they heard people were throwing away stuff that was really good, right? They were were getting rid of the clutter. And what this explosive popularity shows, well, you know, there's there's certainly, certainly we could bring more order to our lives. Certainly that can be a good thing. But there is a hunger for someone to help us simplify our lives, to cut out all the excess and get down to what matters to keep what brings us joy, and to get rid of the accumulated junk of our lives. And so that's what Paul is doing here. He spent 14 chapters, kind of item by item, going through the Corinthians' lives and trying to sort out the chaos. 
trying to sort out all of these things that they had added to the gospel. You had people who believed that some type of esoteric wisdom would bring them life, others that believed their spectacular spiritual gifts was what really mattered, others that believed that their their spiritual acts of renunciation or denial is what really mattered in the Christian life. And now Paul clears all that out, and he says, no, no, let's get this decently and in order, centered and ordered around the gospel, the one thing alone that can give us life. And so what is uh, the gospel, as Paul defines it here? Gospel uh, simply means good news. It's the good news of who God is and what he's done. He starts by showing us that it is good news that God has dealt with sin. Look at starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. There's a lot packed into these little words. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. You notice that sometimes when Paul quotes the Old Testament, when he, when he makes reference to Israel's scriptures, sometimes he quotes particular passages. He's done that in 1 Corinthians, 15, uh, in 1 Corinthians, and he'll do it later in this chapter, to pull out specific quotes to show specific ways that Jesus is the fulfillment of what humanity and Israel in particular had always hoped for, and that the scriptures of the Old Testament pointed towards him. But here he doesn't do that. Instead of quoting specific passages, he says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Essentially, in accordance with all of the scriptures. Right? It's Paul's belief that what happened on the cross, Jesus dealing with sin once and for all, is the long-awaited climax to the entire story of God and his people beginning in Genesis. That the main tension that drove the Old Testament narrative forward was this question of how will God deal with human sin? Right, God who made us to live with him in worship, in communion, in intimacy, in obedience. The God who our first parents, Adam and Eve, abandoned in their rebellion. Who right there in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were caught in their shame and in their guilt, the God who slaughtered animals to make coverings for them, to cover their shame, the God who promised uh, to Eve that her seed would one day crush the head of the serpent, right? That that story that began there, the story that continued through God's building his covenant with Abraham. And when God made that covenant with Abraham, uh, taking animals and ripping them in half, is a sign that this is what would happen to one who breaks the covenant. But then God only, going through that blood and taking on to himself that he would be the one who bears the penalty for human rebellion. The same God who, who worked to call his people out of slavery in Egypt, passing over their firstborn in the Passover, setting them free through the wilderness to bring them to a land of their own. The God who gave them the the sacrificial system of the blood of animals to sprinkle over and cover over their sins, that that story was moving towards a conclusion of how God would once and for all take care of the problem of sin by taking it on to himself. God's promises to David to bring a greater king than him, 
to rule over his people, to lead them in righteousness, to lead the world into peace. That all of those stories, according to the scriptures, were leading towards the coming of Jesus. They were leading to what happened on the cross when Jesus took the full weight of human sin onto himself. All of our guilt, all of our shame, the full weight of the judgment of God onto his own head on the cross. Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Only in the person of Christ, only in the cross, can we begin to truly and rightly understand the many stories, what can seem to be a a scattered group of different stories when we read the Bible, comes to be seen as one story. One story about God's pursuit of sinful people and his commitment, his absolute commitment to win us back to himself and to deal with our sin. But not only does Paul say that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, but also that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Right, that not only did Jesus take onto himself the penalty for sin, but that he also dealt uh, with what Paul is going to go on in this chapter to call our final enemy, the enemy of death itself. That Christ uh, really died in the body. That's one of the reasons that Paul here says that he was buried. That in the early church, there was already beginning to be uh, a false teaching that Jesus didn't really die and that he didn't really get, get resurrected, right? That he sort of spiritually died, but his, his spirit lived on. And Paul says, no, no, he was physically buried and he really rose again. And we know it's true because he appeared to people. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But this is the good news, right? Not only that Jesus died for us, but that he also has defeated death. He's torn, a, torn apart uh, what Isaiah calls the veil that was over all people. The veil of death. That Christ has dealt uh, with that too. And then Paul appeals not only to the witness of the, of the scriptures in the past that, that attest to this, But he actually talks to them about real people who witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Right? This is is amazing. He says that he appeared first to Cephas, that's the apostle Peter. He then appeared to the disciples, and then he appeared to over 500 people, most of whom were still alive when he wrote this. Right? He's saying that this really happened, and if you want to find out if it happened or not, there are 500 people, 500 plus They can talk to you and attest with their own eyes that they witnessed the risen Jesus, right? That they met him, that they saw him. Some of the apostles can even witness to to having seen him come and walk through walls and appear before them, eating a meal before them in a new body, inviting them to touch him and to feel his resurrection life. You know, this is important for us uh, because Christianity is unique among all the world religions. And that the good news is news. It is a pronouncement about something that happened with a real person, two real people in history. Right? Almost all of the other world religions, if you take out the historical stories, you still have the basics of the religion. Right? Buddhism, it doesn't matter all that much what Buddha did. It matters mostly what he taught. Right? Even Islam. If you take away Muhammad and and what he did, you still have what they believe to be his revelation. 
But Christianity, if you take away Jesus and what happened, take away the miracles, take away his life, take away his death, above all, take away his resurrection, then you're left with nothing. Paul's going to go on to say that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain, that it doesn't matter, right? If, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then you know what? Just go on with your life. Find something else to do. Because Christianity rises or falls on the belief that something actually happened, that Jesus really did die, he really was buried, and on the third day he rose again. The apostles who write our New Testament are clear to build it on the backs of eyewitness testimony. This is why, that, that if you read the Gospels, they're categorically different than most other religious texts. Because they're constantly giving you real names and real places and real people. Most of whom would have been alive to the contemporary audience that was reading these things. Essentially as a way of validating the story. And so, friends, remember, the gospel is an announcement. It's not advice. It's not religious teaching. It's news that something happened. We should beware of any attempts at Christianity that say that what happened really doesn't matter. Right? That say that, oh, you know what? If Jesus' resurrection was just spiritual, he's still a great teacher. Um, if his crucifixion was simply as a, as a sign of what real love looks like, it's still as good. We need to cling to a Christianity that's built on the belief that that really happened, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And on the third day, he rose again. I love that what Paul writes when he says, uh, there are 500 who saw him, some of whom have fallen asleep. Some of whom have fallen asleep. That because of what Jesus did, because of his triumph over death, death for them is now sleep. Death for them is now no more than a good rest before waking up into new life. Friends, as we prayed together as a church today, you heard us pray for people who passed uh, just this past week. And the reason that we as Christians have a power to face death, and yes, to mourn it, yes, to weep over it, but not to live in fear of it, not to live in dread of it, not to be consumed by despair in its face, is because Christ has made death like sleep. He's made death something that we will wake from, as easy as we wake from a good night's sleep. So the good news is the the gospel, uh, the good news that God has dealt once and for all with sin. It's also uh, the good news that you can change, that you can change in this life. Look at uh, at what Paul says In verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. You know, Paul, uh, certainly other places, talks about the salvation of the gospel in the past tense. Right? You have been saved. Because of what Christ has done for you, because he's taken your sin upon himself and defeated death, you can know that you have been saved. The work is finished. Right? You are justified before the throne of God. But here Paul uses different language. He says you are being saved. Right? He's painting this picture that of the present power of Christ to save us not only from the guilt and penalty of sin, but to free us from its enslaving power in our lives. 
right? That he is actively working to save you. That he is actively working to undo the power that sin has over your heart. He's actively working to make new the brokenness of sin in your life. You are being saved. We, our, our trust in the gospel uh, is the trust in a living Savior who by his Spirit is, on, is doing ongoing work in our lives. So he appeals to the past. He appeals to what they've already received in order to give them hope that, that the power of sin in their present is being undone. The language that Paul uses here of what I've been given, what I received and I passed on to you, uh, leads us to believe that this is an ancient early creed that he's giving them. Right? It's the same language that he uses when he talks about the institution of communion, that he's passing on to them what he received from others. We think this might have been an early baptismal formula, that this is the, the words that they were baptized into, that Christ died for sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he rose to new life in accordance with the Scriptures. And so Paul is, is not giving them some new information, but reminding them of what they already have in reminding them of its ongoing practical power to work in their lives to set them free from the power of sin. Friends, the gospel gives us the power to change at a deep level, right? Those parts of yourself that you are convinced are as unchangeable as the color of your eyes or the color of your hair or your height, right? Those patterns of sin, those patterns of addiction, those ways of relating, that you, you in and of yourself feel absolutely powerless to break. The gospel offers us power to change, power to be made new. Is evidence of that Paul offers himself in his own life. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, verse 9, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Hear what Paul's saying. He's saying, if, if any of you think you can't change, if any of you think that you're beyond the power of the gospel to make you new, let me tell you a little bit of my story. I was murdering Christians. I was administering street justice in mock trials against the followers of Jesus and watching them as they got stoned for their faith. And then when I met Jesus, he literally knocked me off of my horse. He blinded me with light. He turned my life around. And now the same group of people and the same Lord that I once sought to kill, I now go around risking my life to start churches and to tell other people about him. So if you think you're beyond the pale, if you think that you're beyond changing, you are not. There's nothing that you face, no ingrained pattern of behavior, no, no sin, no shame, no guilt, that the gospel cannot deal with. Some of you know what it is to want so badly to change in a fundamental part of your life and to wrestle with it again and again and again. You know what it is to make promises to God that you know ahead of time you're about to break. Right? You know what it is to try to change on your own power. The gospel comes in for each of us when we finally give up trying to change ourselves. 
when we finally give up relying on our own power and trust in the power beyond ourselves to change ourselves? Right? What is the, the truth that's, that's glimpsed, if not completely, uh, in the first of the 12 steps, if you've been through that uh, process before? We admitted that we were powerless over whatever our addictions are. And we turned, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Right? There is truth in those words. But there's truth beyond those words. Right? The, the, the beauty of the gospel is that we have a name for that power beyond ourselves. Right? It's not an anonymous power. Paul tells us elsewhere that the power that we trust in is the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. The power of God's Spirit working in us and through us. What Paul says here when talking about the resurrection, he doesn't say that Jesus rose himself on the third day. He doesn't say that Jesus through his own power rose on the third day. But that Jesus was raised on the third day. Right? That the Holy Spirit of the Father raised Jesus from the dead, and that same spirit by faith now lives within us. That if that power was not unable to raise Jesus from the dead, he can raise you from, your, from the, the enslaving power of sin and addiction in your life. And we can be changed by his spirit and by his power. And then finally, we see that the good news means that our life has a new purpose. That our life has a new purpose. You know, for so many of us, the ways that our lives get to that point of burnout where we've added so many things onto our lives, so many commitments, so many pursuits, is because we live our lives trying to find our satisfaction through the approval of other people, right? Certainly, we've seen that in, in, in the church in Corinth, remember one commentator said that in Corinth, they had raised the, the art of, uh, of self-promotion to an art form. That they lived with this life of trying to impress one another. Who's the smartest? Who's the wealthiest? Who's the most powerful? Who's the most gifted? Right? That into that kind of world where they were constantly competing to fill themselves up as they compared themselves with others. Where even now in this world of ladder climbing, they had started to look at the Apostle Paul, their founder, as someone to be pitied. Because Paul wasn't much in the world's eyes. He was never wealthy. He was an itinerant minister. He worked a manual labor job to support himself. He was not wildly successful, but was persecuted, was broken. They had started to even start to, to say, you know what, we need to move on from Paul. He's not all that impressive. And yet into this context, Paul says, I am the least of the apostles. Here in those words, how he has no interest in building his own resume to them, waste no time trying to justify himself. The least of the apostles, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Right? By the grace of God, I am what I am. Right? Imagine having the freedom that comes from knowing that you are God's beloved just as you are. He's already, you've admitted the worst about yourself. You've admitted your sin. You know that Jesus has dealt with your sin. So nobody else can accuse you of anything that you haven't already owned up to before God. Right? You, he's taken the penalty of death on, yourself, on, on himself, so nothing that anybody else can threaten you means anything. Right? If you're not a slave to death and don't have to live in fear of that, what is any other punishment you could run into? And when you come from that place, you can say, you know what? By God's grace, I am what I am. 
right? Even if I never do finish that degree, even if I never do get rid of that extra 20 pounds that I've been trying to lose, even if I never do uh, get my act together and figure out how to order my house more neatly, right? Even if I never do uh, have the perfectly ordered life, I am what I am. God loves me. He's set me free. He's forgiven me. And not only that, he's brought me and all that I am, all of my strengths, all of my weaknesses, all of my wisdom and all of my lack of wisdom. He's brought that to himself and he means to use it for his glory and for his kingdom. You know, Paul, uh, even in the midst of this, you know, self-effacing, least of the apostles, all of that, he says, but you know what? I did work harder than any of those guys. Right? Yeah, I'm the least of the apostles. Don't, don't you know, I'm not all that special, but I will, I, I will just point out that I labored harder than anyone ever has for Jesus. Right? I have sacrificed more, given more, done more, labored more. In one place, Paul will say, my life is being poured out like a drink offering on the altar. Right? I've given everything for the cause of Christ and for his glory. I've labored more than any of them. He says that shows that God's grace to him was not in vain. That's a phrase that's going to repeat in chapter 15. This idea that grace, the gospel, the good news is not in vain. It's not, it doesn't just come to us and end there. Right? Grace isn't just for you. Right? It's for you so that it might be through you. Uh, Jack Miller, one of my theological uh, mentors, said that God's grace isn't a coin to be spent on yourself. And I love that line. Right? It's not just something that you get for your own sake so you can go, oh, isn't this great? I'm forgiven. I'm set free. I don't have to fear death. Awesome. It's not for you. It's so that through you, his grace might come to touch other people. So that through you, you might be a vessel and a carrier of God's grace in a grace-starved world. So that you could tell your story, as Paul does here, not making a lot of yourself, but saying, this is who I was, this is who I'm becoming, this is what Jesus is saving me from in my life right now. St. Augustine wrote of this passage, Paul did not labor in order to receive grace, but he received grace so that he might labor. Right? Every other religion in the world, every other system of self-help, every other bit of worldly uh, wisdom says you labor so that you're good, so that God loves you, so that God accepts you. Right? You do enough good things, you help enough old ladies across the street, uh, you clean up your bad habits, you bring your life into order, and then at the end of the day, maybe, just maybe, when you appear before God, your good outweighs your bad, and you get heaven at the end. Only Christianity says you have God's love. You have his forgiveness. You have heaven waiting for you. It's yours. Therefore, you labor not in order to earn God's affection, but out of God's affection. You labor not to earn grace, but because of grace. May what Paul knew, that only the gospel, only the gospel is sufficient to help us order our lives in a way that gives us life and purpose and peace. May we live into that as people and as a church. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for your good news. We thank you for your announcement that in Christ, debts are forgiven, sin is canceled, death is defeated. Lord, we thank you that when we trust in Christ, when we trust his death to deal with our sin, his resurrection to give us life, Lord, that you come on us and into us in your resurrection power, that your spirit falls on us and lives in us and through us. Lord Jesus, as we look at our lives, as we look at our world, there is so much bad news. There's so much guilt, there's so much sin, there's so much shame, there's so much hopelessness. But Lord, may you and your goodness remind us of the good news. Help us to ground our lives and to live our lives around, in, and out of that good news of what you've done and what you are doing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.